Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. We're back again and we're closing off this uh, this two-part series where I've been looking at the first opening 30 verses of Genesis chapter 46 and considering what it can teach us about the basis of good decision-making. Now, we're finishing in verse 30, which I'll explain later on because I believe there's a natural break in the narrative there. And then we'll actually have a separate little time where we look at the last four verses of this chapter. But this is part of our ongoing uh, project to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we're, we're well on our way now. Now, if you've arrived here for the first time today, why not consider going right back to the start and making the study of the Bible part of your rhythm of your daily life for probably about the next five years. Anyway, uh, a quick reminder, there's always a transcript of everything I say available in any any episode notes of the audio version of this podcast. So with that said, we'll launch off and jump straight back into the text. Now, before I go any further, I'd just like to make the point that I've spent many, many years of my life studying the Bible. As a matter of fact, this year marks the 47th year since I became a Christian. Now, I grew up in a Christian household, but before I made even that personal decision to make the Lord the centre of my life, even as a young child, I was interested in the Bible and I grew up in a tradition where Bible study was the expected norm and the Bible sort of seeped into me as a child. I then began to study it systematically about 35 years ago and in doing so I've attempted to go through every book. Now I haven't made my all all the way through it yet in terms of a serious deep level of study but I have read and studied through the complete Bible seven times now from a sort of a, a limited devotional study each time. But as far as in-depth study goes, I haven't covered the whole Bible yet. I'm close, but I haven't looked at detail. I would say I'm shy of about 10 books of the 66 books that are there. But I'm working on those now, and that's part of this process. And I personally can't wait to address the shortfalls in my knowledge by completing the study by this podcast over the next five years or so. Now, the reason I bring this up is that the fact that the study of the Bible has been my passion. It isn't a chore for virtually all of my adult life. And if you do that, you bump into the kind of problem that I've just made you aware of in the last episode. The fact is that some people like to point out these so-called contradictions in the Bible. But I'm here to tell you that in my life, I've looked at virtually all of the well-known supposed contradictions in the Bible And in every case, absolutely every case, I find there to be a completely reasonable explanation. As a matter of fact, it gets really interesting for me because I've always been interested in Scripture and I love to figure out what the answers to these difficult questions might be. Now, don't get me wrong, I haven't discovered these answers for myself. In fact, they're often there. There's sometimes even more than one answer to this perceived problem. And many of those queries, nearly all of those queries, were answered long, long ago by some of history's great Bible teachers. It's just the biblical knowledge that has got lost 
in us as a society, more and more people lose their biblical literacy. Even people who come to faith nowadays and a serious committed faith don't have that biblical literacy in their background. So what that means, what I'm saying is when someone comes to you and says it's a contradiction, and I've had many people say that to me over the years, it's a very common sort of opening statement that non-believers make. It's a common thing for people to come up with some sort of statement that say, oh, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. My standard answer to that statement is, and I believe it should be yours as well, is what particular contradiction are you talking about? I recommend that if you come up against this, you simply ask that question every time. In other words, say, tell me the contradictions you're talking about. Now, you may feel nervous to make such a statement and ask such a question because perhaps you'd be fearful that what you might get back you won't be able to answer. But my friends, I can confidently tell you that nine times out of ten, they won't be able to have one. They don't have one. They won't be able to express it. They've just heard this said about the Bible sometime in the past by someone else, and they're just repeating it. In the very rare occasion they too come back with something, you can probably say, you can just answer, well, I'll get back to you. And I promise you a few minutes research online and you'll find that supposed contradiction has a very, very straightforward answer. But every once in a while, they bring up one of these contradictions. Now, I've made the decision that as we go through the Bible, there are about seven or eight main ones, and I'm going to address each one of them as they come up. Now, as I didn't address the first one, one of the most common ones earlier in the book of Genesis, I'm going to quickly do it now before addressing the one that appears here. And then naturally, hopefully, I'll be able to help as, we, as we're confronted with other issues where there is a supposed conflict. But one of the most common ones I heard was, where did Cain get his wife? In other words, where did the first generation of children get their wives from? Now, you may have heard that because this story plays out in the first three chapters of Genesis. And the question is, where did the children of Adam and Eve get their wives and husbands from? Now, have you ever heard that? I wonder if anybody's ever said something like that to you. You see, there appears to be a problem, but only because most people only know the bare bones of the creation story and they think, well, Adam and Eve had two children, Cain and Abel, and they also perhaps even know that Cain killed Abel. So how did he get a wife? Well, let me give you an answer to this one, and this is the first one, and I'll give it to you for free. The answer is found in Genesis 5, verse 4. When it's closing off the story, it tells us, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. So Adam had daughters, and it stands to reason, at the beginning of the human race, then brothers and sisters would have married. Now, some people might say, oh, that's a problem, that's incest, you can't marry your sister. Well, we know that today, and those laws were brought about today because it became recognised very soon with the Enlightenment and the development of education and some understanding of family history, that if two close siblings marry each other, the mathematical calculation 
of a genetic weakness appearing in the form of a disability or a disadvantage coming through in the children is, was much greater if people married their close relatives. So that's why, through the unfolding of history, it gradually became forbidden until it is pretty much forbidden worldwide all around the world today. But remember, this story goes right back into the mists of time, into the period of what Bible experts call the prehistory, and you've got to realize, you know, you've got to think, suppose your parents are perfect physically. That's what the Genesis story tells. Unaffected by sin. There wouldn't be any weaknesses in the genetic line at that point. And if your mother and mother were Adam and Eve, that aspect of it wouldn't be a problem, would it? It took thousands of years for the effect of sin to affect the physical deterioration of the family line of Adam. And even that is demonstrated for us by the slow decline in life expectancy that is shown through the various family trees depicted as we work through the book of Genesis. Then eventually a prohibition came against marrying with siblings, but it came about many, many years later over a thousand years later, experts say, when it was written into the Mosaic Law. So there's no contradiction there in that particular one. Now I bring that up because it's one of the most common contradictions. It's the first one that people often quote in the Bible. And as we've already passed it, I thought I'd try and answer it today. But that doesn't answer the fact that, as I referred to yesterday, that the book of Acts in the New Testament, Stephen gives an account of these events and it seems to contradict what's been said so far. So let's just pick up and I'll quickly read for you Acts 7, 11, 14. And this is what Stephen says. And he's explaining the events that we're studying today. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering for our ancestors who could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and the whole family, 75 in all. So how do you reconcile the fact that it says 75 here, yet in the Genesis account it says 70? Well, look again at verse 14. And it actually says, Joseph called his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 in all. That is the specific word that is used, called. Do you see what that does? Do you see it says that 75 people were called into Egypt. It says he called 75 people to go to Egypt. It says nothing about the number that actually went. So there is clearly, technically, very clearly, not a contradiction between Acts 7.14 and between the closing verse from last time, Genesis 46.27. Because Genesis 46.27, all the persons in the house of Jacob who actually went into Egypt were 70 in number. Therefore, Joseph called potentially up to 75 people, but only 70 showed up. Maybe a few stayed behind because they had surrendered their lives over to the Canaanite way of living, having uh, been married into it. So, right, let's now go back to Genesis 46 and we'll try and finish these last remaining verses up to verse 30 and try to summarize what's going on here. We've gone all the way down to verse 27, so let's pick it up in verse 28 where it tells us 
Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of them to get directions to Goshen when they arrived in the region of Goshen. So what's happening here is they've got close to Egypt and they send Judah, one of Jacob's sons, to see Joseph and say, we're here. Where do we go now? In other words, we've arrived. What do we do now? And it tells us Joseph sent them to the land of Goshen. 29 and 30 says Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms round his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. It's not nice. Amazing. I've got my long lost son back. I'm so happy I can die in peace now. So all this is telling us that they get to Egypt and Jacob and Joseph meet and Jacob has a real sense of peace in finally finding his long lost son, the one he thought was dead. However, this is the point at which we're going to pause in terms of the text because up to this point, this section is actually a unit in its own right. It's the end of an episode in this particular story. In spite of the lack of a chapter break, because remember these chapter breaks were added much later on, I believe it's actually the end of this part of the story. And the point of the story so far is to say that these people, this extended family, left Canaan and they finally made it to Egypt. And they brought a total of 70 people with them. And then there's this wonderful, fantastic reunion between Jacob and his son Joseph. They've not seen each other for 23 years, so the Bible experts say. So you can imagine the absolute joy, ecstatic experience that must have been for everyone. Now they were finally together. Now I think this is a simple story, a basic story, about how 70 people come from Canaan to Egypt. I mean, that's basically the narrative of the story. And the only significant part of the story that really sticks out for me from a spiritual lesson is the fact that he paused and made a sacrifice. And then he got a word that what he was doing was okay. His decision to go down to Egypt was okay. So please note, I think the key thing to pick out of this is God did not appear to him before he decided to go. He confirmed it when he was on his way. And I think that's quite a significant thing in this passage. It's different to how decisions and calls have been made in the past up to this point. Maybe God's retreating slightly and allowing people to make decisions based on their common sense and their spiritual knowledge of having walked the path with God for a while. The fact is, what we see here is Jacob bases his decision initially on just common sense. And it turns out he made a decision that was not only in the will of God, but furthered the will of God because God said, I'm going to get you down to Egypt and I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt. So his common sense decision was not against the will of God. It was in the will of God and it even was able to further the will of God. So the point I want to make here is that a simple basis for making a decision can sometimes just be using your common sense. Let me clarify my position on what we can learn here. What I'm saying is, assuming that there's no scripture to the contrary, proceed according to your best judgment, whilst at the same time continuing to seek the Lord with prayer for guidance. 
because we can have confidence that the Lord will either bless that decision or else he will overrule and redirect it. And it's, it's an amazing comfort to know that, isn't it? So here's the point I want to make today. It's incredibly simple, but it needs to be made where there is no clear statement, principle or example in the scriptures of the Bible for making a decision. You are quite free just to use your common sense. Now, I think this is important because in the past, as you know, I've been a pastor. And in my experience, often when people are seeking the will of God in their decision making, they usually fall into one of two camps, particularly if they're struggling. There are those who are paralyzed in their decision making because they are waiting for God to move supernaturally in revealing the next steps for them. And they don't know how to use their God-given common sense. Of all the people I've ever come to talk to me and ask me questions or even advice about their future decisions making, anybody who's come to me in a role as pastor, I would say most of the time, the majority of the time, the question is answered by nothing more than making a common sense decision. Recently, a pastor I know contacted me because he needed some advice. Now, I couldn't imagine why he wanted advice from me. He was a highly intelligent man, went to a top university and was an ordained minister. He had a theology degree, great knowledge of the scripture and had been in church leadership for much longer than me. What did he need to come to talk to me about advice? Well, in our discussions, it came out that the church he had been pastoring had been surviving on past financial resources. And in spite of steady growth, it was still running out of money. So by mutual consent, he'd agreed to resign. But now he found himself without a job and he was living on his severance. But the bottom line is he was about to run out of money and he was fearful that he might have to move back to live with his parents at the age of 40 plus. As I listened to him describe the details of his dilemma, I learned that because he had lived in a church-provided house and all his bills had been paid, in fact, since leaving university, so a very long time, he had had extremely low outgoings, no house bills to pay for nearly 20 years, but during that time he had still saved no money. He had expected to stay in a man's all his life and maybe even he said he believed that he would be allowed to retire into one when he finished his time as a minister. Now I said that he could pray that the Lord would open a door for some other kind of ministry because he was a talented and gifted minister and I said that praying about that would be a good thing to do. But also I said you should not wait for the Lord to open the door for ministry and just sit there waiting and doing nothing. He was planning to consider retraining as a teacher and looking for a role as a chaplain. So I said during the period of his retraining, then he should move back into his family home, which was being offered to him with open arms. But during his training time, set aside his grants and the money he would be given to save for a deposit for accommodation in two years time. Now, what I was suggesting to him to me just felt like common sense. I even said maybe he could get a part-time job while studying his two-year university course to save a bit extra during those years. Now, I have to say, I would have done that in a heartbeat as a young man. I think I would have even done it at the age of 40. That seemed to me just common sense. But I'm amazed today how many people who ask for advice and the advice they need 
is nothing more than common sense. But the thing I think it's worth saying is that common sense, biblical common sense, isn't really common anymore. I'm amazed at how uncommon common sense is these days. So let me repeat again what my advice is in nearly every situation where you're waiting on the the Lord or you have an important decision to make. This is the point where there is no indication in Scripture as to what you would do, then just apply some simple common sense because that can indeed be sanctified common sense. The Scripture also tells us that there is safety in a multitude of counsellors. So if your decision-making involves you thinking or gaining knowledge in an area that you feel you're not qualified, go and talk with other people, wise people, spiritually-minded people, people who you can then get their common sense about how you should react in that situation. If you don't have a good understanding about a subject, then go get it, friends. Don't feel like you've done something wrong. If God hadn't spoken, he expects you to use your common sense and to make a decision using it or finding it from other people. So what I believe we can be thankful for in reading this is the fact that through his words in the Bible, he has given us loads of heavenly wisdom that can give us some advice in many directions in so many areas of their life. And we can also be thankful and take advantage of all those people who've studied this word before us. So that if it's new to us, if we're a new believer, or we struggle to know what the decision should be, we can still go to people who are experienced in that area of life and have walked that path themselves at some time, the path that we are going to need to walk, and they can give us advice. And I do hope the other thing that you can be thankful of is that you've been given a sound mind. I know we struggle sometimes, but generally we have been given a sound mind and some good sense and some good guidance that we can make decisions and make common sense decisions that importantly aren't overly influenced by the world, aren't overly influenced by materialism, and thereby, by doing that straightforward, simple common sense thing, we can not only stay in God's will, But also, this passage tells us we can go further into his will in the future. Okay, folks, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. We'll close off these last four verses of this chapter next time we get back together again. But I do hope you've enjoyed our time together. A quick reminder, not only is there a transcript available of everything I say, but there also are links to ways in which you can connect to the ministry the likes of through Facebook, YouTube and other places, as well as a Patreon page if you feel you wanted to partner with this ministry. But what I would really appreciate, well first of all I would appreciate the prayers of each and every one of you who, uh, who have committed to pray for this ministry. It's a, it's a big commitment to study the Word of God for and to create some, some teaching for 20-25 minutes every day. So I hope you're praying for me that I might be enabled in every way to do that. But you know, I really want to say thank you to each and every one of you who've decided to go on this audio journey together over these next years. I hope you're really benefiting from it. I know I am. It is amazing to make the rhythm of the Bible and the study of the Bible, 
part of your daily lives. But you know what? Wouldn't it be good to share it with other people so they can do the same? So if you are benefiting from this in any way, then I humbly ask that you consider liking it, sharing it, and maybe even reviewing it, because I'm told that way it will be seen by other people, a great many more people. And they can benefit too from make, uh, by making the study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of their daily lives also. So thank you. There are thousands of us on this journey together now, and a wonderful thing that is. This community uh, coalescing around the Word of God has been such an encouragement to me as I find my way forward uh, in these latter years of my ministry. So thank you so much for that. And I do hope you'll be back again with me tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. If you've subscribed to the podcast, it'll be whatever day you get that little ping appears on your phone or on your on your your tablet which tells you there's another lesson being uploaded but anyway that's it for now and i'll see you back here again very soon on the bible project daily podcast bye bye for now